You're listening to the UBC Medicine Learning Network. Hello, welcome to COVID-19, Update for Healthcare Professionals, Voices from the Frontlines podcast. You may notice a few audio imperfections due to the live recording of this session. It was recorded remotely from the presenter's homes and without professional equipment. Good evening, everyone, and thank you for joining us for this webinar tonight, which will be COVID-19 update number 12. COVID-19 um, update, uh, this webinar will be on innovation and change in family practice arising from COVID-19 pandemic. My name is Bruce Hobson. I'm a family physician and a medical director for UBC Continuing Professional Development. We'd like to acknowledge that UBC CPD is situated on the traditional territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. This webinar is the 12th in a series of COVID-19 webinars that the UBC Division of Continuing Professional Development within the Faculty of Medicine is delivering to support a multidisciplinary healthcare audience in urban and rural practice during the COVID-19 pandemic. And finally, at the end of the session, please remember to take a few moments to complete the attendance and evaluation forms. In order to obtain study credits, you must complete the online attendance form, and you can access these forms via the email link you received for this session. And before we started, we wanted to acknowledge that as a, the COVID-19 pandemic evolves, the University of British Columbia Faculty of Medicine um, Division of Continuing Professional Development wants to acknowledge and thank the hundreds of faculty members, medical residents, healthcare professionals, and frontline staff who are working in extraordinarily stressful conditions in the healthcare system in order to provide the best care possible. We really appreciate that. And if this stress is becoming overwhelming, please talk to a colleague or call a colleague at the Physician Health Program at 1-800-663-6729. We cannot thank you enough for the challenge you're undertaking. And this free webinar tonight is being offered with that in mind. So let's get started with this session. I'd like, you, I'd like to now pass you over to our panel, all of whom are grassroots urban family physicians who are discussing this topic from their own personal and professional viewpoints and experiences. We'll start with Dr. Daniel Newey. Dr. Newey, over to you. Please introduce yourself and take it away. Thanks, Bruce. I've known you for eight years, and I'm really glad you're the moderator because I know you're going to do a great job. Um, I'm an urban family doctor. I'm involved with teaching IMGs, trainees, uh, medical students, NPs, and I'm involved in developing and delivering CMEs. I am not wearing my hat uh, that have the BC guidelines work that I do or the quality improvement work that I do with the College of Physicians and Surgeons. And I'm a medical director at a clinic in South Vancouver. My work family is 11 medical office assistants. We hired two international medical graduates who work as chronic disease coordinators. And I'm lucky and fortunate enough to work with eight part-time and full-time physicians and one nurse practitioner. My most important disclosure is I have no idea what I'm doing. I don't have it figured out. I'm striving every day and I hope and pray we'll all make it. Thank you, Daniel. And over, over to you, Jaron. 
Hi, so I'm Jaron Easterbrook. Uh, I'm a new grad, relatively. I've been in practice for two years in uh, Greater Victoria. Um, I, um, <laughs> I think I left a couple things off my list. Um, I am involved in divisions and um, also a number of GPSC committees. But um, together with Aaron uh, Childs, who will be speaking momentarily, um, I'm co-chairing uh, the Greater Victoria COVID Task Group. And so this is a cross-division and island health uh, group that's looking at how do we help uh, community practices uh, work through COVID and respond to it. Um, so I uh, am excited to be sharing some of the conversations that we've had at that group uh, with you all tonight. Thank you, Jaron. Dr. Welsh? Thanks, Bruce. I've been a family physician in Abbotsford for the past 30 years, and I work with an amazing team of co-innovators, including 10 family physicians, an endocrinologist, three LPNs, and an incredible support team without which none of the things that we do would be possible. Our mission is to promote optimal health through exceptional healthcare, by which we mean exceptional clinical outcomes, satisfaction, and value for all. My staff and colleagues would probably refer to me as a bit of a systems nut, and that's because I'm always looking for ways of optimizing workflow. That's led to a lot of EMR and practice optimization over the last 10 years and sharing some of those innovations through peer mentoring, consulting, and collaboration with other EMR user groups. And that's because I think that if we make doing the right thing easier to do, it will help us to take better care of more people in less time with less stress. Thank you, Richard. And finally, to you, Aaron. Uh, thanks, Bruce. Uh, so, I'm practicing in Victoria, uh, one disclosure I guess I could provide is business, which is called Oakland Health and happens to be a medical office with three family docs, two MOAs, an empty waiting room, and six empty exam rooms. Um, I've been also working with our local divisions of family practice, as Dr. Easterbrook mentioned, on our community COVID response task force along with uh, with, with Jaron, along with Island Health and others. Um, and my interest in this started when I raised my hand to the division and said, I don't think we all need to make our own sign for the door of uh, how to screen for you to come into the patients, so uh, to come into the practice. Uh, and now I'm uh, co-chairing a COVID response task force. So you, know, you have to be careful what you put your hand up for. Um, so tonight, Thank you everybody for introducing yourself and uh, the learning objectives for tonight um, are that um, we hope that all of you online will be able to identify changes in community practice as relates to the following four things. Um, I really wanted to point out as I've noticed in some of the questions that have already been um, posted so far that this webinar is not geared towards answering questions uh, that are in the realm of public health control. Um, and um, the panelists that we have are uh, family physicians, as you all are, and are speaking to their experiences. So just to flag that from people that are putting in the questions uh, and to make you aware, to if you could have your questions as relates to um, family practice and not to the um, the public health um, rules and regulations. Thank you. So 
Um, we're going to be asking four questions tonight at the panelists, and they'll be answering them and then uh, move to uh, other questions from you for the rest of uh, the webinar. And the first question that I wanted to ask uh, you first, Aaron, is that um, we recognize that the this pandemic is is really unprecedented. It's not something that we're at all uh, used to uh, in our practice lifetimes, and it makes us really sensitive and hyper aware of the risk of one-to-one uh, -one contact with our patients. And I'm curious, what are your thoughts about the effects uh, of this in in particular on your practice? Thanks, Bruce. Um, you know, as the COVID pandemic was evolving, I'll just double check that everyone can hear that okay? Nice and clear. Thanks, Aaron. Uh, as the COVID pandemic was evolving in early March, our practice recognized early on we didn't have the appropriate PPE or protocols in place to do any COVID testing safely in our office. And we quickly realized we're actually putting ourselves and our staff at risk with patients presenting to our office with any respiratory symptoms. Remember, it was only six weeks ago we were screening only people who'd recently traveled from China. And at that time in Victoria, we were starting to evolve the community assessment clinics. So on March 17th, our office made the difficult decision to close the office to patients and work 100% virtually, most of us remotely from home. This was a dramatic shift for us, and it really highlighted the inefficiencies that we've been putting up with working on site and yelling down the hall. It also highlighted the loss of connectedness with each other and our staff once we began working remotely and we couldn't yell down the hall at each other anymore. It has really been a challenge to keep everyone in the office connected and up to speed with the evolving changes that we're all working remote while we're all working remotely. And our initial experience was really we only had one or two patients a week that required a physical exam to change their management, which for me was eye-opening. What have you been doing for these people all this time before COVID? And I realized that we've really been providing medical care by meeting and speaking with them in person. And in today's reality, it's a luxury that may not be possible for some time. I found as I was working virtually, I was drawing more on my rural medicine experiences of the past. I found I really needed to evaluate if that patient needed a particular test to alter their medical care since obtaining that test was a risk to the patient and, an, and the system now in a time of COVID. But thankfully, I found patients were much more understanding when I told them that just right now, we're going to approach things a little differently. Um, COVID-19 for me has caused me to have to rethink everything about how I provide patient care. How do I, I do that with no in-person patient contact in our office and with minimal in-person contact with the healthcare system at large? Our office was created to be a welcoming, calm, enjoyable place for physicians to work and patients to visit, and now it's, it's empty apart from the days when physicians work virtually from their exam room. Patients don't want, don't want to go anywhere near anywhere to receive care for fear of catching something at the lab, the assessment clinic, or the emergency department. mostly because we are the ones who have appropriately told them to avoid places like doctor's offices, emergency rooms, labs, and x-rays, if they can at all help it. Um, I've also found the switch to virtual care has made me more physically exhausted at the end of the day. After talking all day on the phone, trying to stay on time with 10-minute phone appointments, sitting, making notes, it was surprising. I didn't think I moved around that much when the patients were in the office, but I have found that I do need to book more time to move around in between phone calls. Richard, what's your experience with, in, your, in your practice, man? Well, looking back, I can see that the changes sort of occurred in phases. In the first phase, we had our staff screening phone calls and if a patient had COVID-related symptoms, 
we were doing a virtual visit first, and if they needed to be seen, we were actually seeing them in one of the physician's reserved underground parking stalls, which we converted to a makeshift uh, exam area where they would drive in and we would do swabs and things. Eventually, we had a community COVID assessment site and referred all patients there. And then in phase two, we were seeing all patients virtually for the first visit and then having them come on site only if we felt it was necessary. And we set aside a separate room, which has direct access from the hallway, as well as a nearby treatment room for these visits. But now it's 95% of our visits are virtual, maybe 5% of them are on site. We have a, a larger clinic with, with uh, 11 doctors. Uh, so um, there's, there's maybe a, a dozen or so patients per day that we're seeing on site. It's interesting, we look at our mentality, it used to be that everybody should be seen in person unless there's a good reason not to. Now, of course, we've flipped that on its head and our mentality is that visits should all be virtual unless there's a good reason not to. Uh, at this uh, point, all our initial visits are, are, are virtual. Um, and I think that the there's some benefits in this change of mindset and that 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 mindset is here to stay that we will do virtual unless there's a good reason not to. Now there are lots of reasons to do on-site visits, but now we're just limiting it to those that are necessary that would be harmful to the patient if they weren't actually seen. I think the next phase will be the interesting one, will be reimagining how we do patient care once the restrictions are lifted. And some of the ideas that we've tossed around in our clinic is like in the waiting room, increasing the spacing between the chairs, adding plexiglass sneeze guard to the reception counter, and wondering if we'll even be accepting cash in the future. Um, we used to have us, our staff do lots of weights and blood pressures prior to visits. And in the future, I think that most people will now be expected to do that on their own. And we're considering actually putting in a pharmacy grade blood pressure machine in the waiting room that would help facilitate that. Another change is that staff and providers will likely stay home and work remotely when they have a cold as opposed to uh, just coming to work and wearing a mask or not. Um, I say that as one who's only had one sick day in the last 30 years. Looking back, I probably should have taken more. Uh, I think also that likely there'll be protocols developed at a provincial level for mitigation strategies that will vary according to the level of community transmission of diseases like COVID, where mitigation activities will vary depending on whether there's low, medium, or high level of community transmission. But this nuancing of protocols depending on fluctuating levels of community transmission are something that will take some time to develop and I'm sure will evolve over time. Thanks, Richard. And Daniel, did yes, you had something to add. Uh, I think great comments from our panelists. I think that the take-home message for all the attendees tonight is that it's challenging. Uh, we have to really think hard about a systematic approach, whether it's training our staff, our MOAs, it's training our patients, it's training our physicians. Um, Bruce and I and uh, other doctors that I see on the uh, attendee list with this change, my practice put together a step-by-step 
approach to evolving with the pandemic. And all that I'll say is that um, the connectiveness as our, of, with our team is so important. So having teleconferences once a week, developing a WhatsApp group for the MOAs, developing a WhatsApp group for the clinicians, uh, developing messaging for patients on our website, uh, campaign emails, text messaging. There has to be protocols that will help everyone develop a understanding uh, on how to deal with the new norm. Thanks, Daniel. And Jern, did you have anything else to add in there? Um, I, I think a lot of it was covered. The only other thing I found a bit interesting is um, I happen to have a resident. Um, and so that's really changed the way that I work with that individual. Um, it, it's surprising how much of our interaction between patients was, you know, just a quick little check-in. And now we sort of have to formalize that process because she's seeing patients in her virtual waiting room or her virtual clinic, and I'm seeing patients virtually as well. So that's a bit of a different issue. Yeah, you know, and I think, uh, uh, Daniel, you summarized things well. I, I think, uh, Aaron, did you have anything else to add in, in summary uh, from what you've heard? And we may have had lost Aaron just from his, uh, his bandwidth problems in there. Uh, technology. So uh, I guess that's actually, this is serendipitous, Richard, because it leads to the next question. Um, how has your approach to technology and doing virtual care changed? Sure. Great question. Um, I've always seen the value of virtual care as being beneficial for physicians and for patients. In fact, back in the 90s, long before there was a fee code for telephone visits and Many of my colleagues thought it wasn't even good medicine. I was billing patients directly for telephone visits. Our clinic started doing video visits about two years ago, but physician and patient uptake was low and accounted for probably less than 5% of our visits. Um, obviously, now that's the other way around. 5% are on site. Regarding our approach to technology, I've always viewed technology as an enabler and accelerator of change, not a creator of change for the sake of the technology itself. And we've been fortunate that at our clinic, we've had a website, we've been using email, patient portal, SMS already for several years. The difference now is that our use of the technology has increased about tenfold out of necessity. And we're finding a lot more ways of using it than we ever would have before. For a website, for example, we've added links to each physician's virtual waiting room so that when we are doing a virtual visit, we just send a text message that directs them to the website where they can access the link. Uh, MailChimp, we've been using for emails uh, to patients, mass emails, but maybe once or twice a year. Now it's more like once every week or two. Um, and one of the extremely valuable features of a program like that is that you can create customizable fields that will auto-populate with the patient's current contact information. And then patients are instructed if any of the information is missing or out of date, they can either update it using the patient portal or they can just reply to that email. And given that 90% of the information is likely up to date, this is a much more efficient way than using an e-form to update demographic information because with an e-form, patients are never quite sure exactly what information you have on file for them, and then they may reply unnecessarily with information that's already current, creating extra work for the staff. 
So I would recommend that to everyone as a way of updating their demographic information. We've been sending out appointment reminders for over a year, but we've tweaked those so that we now include the link to the website, which again turn, directs them to the particular provider's video link. We also have auto-populated that text reminder with their, their preferred pharmacy that we have on file for them, as well as contact information, asking them to reply to the text if there's any corrections and or additions. And at the end of a virtual visit, we sometimes will copy and paste the assessment and plan from our record into a text message to the patient, which saves us time and also gives the patient something to refer to later. We also use email at the end of an encounter to sometimes email an attachment of patient information. We're currently in the process of optimizing our patient portal to encourage increased use of online booking but also we want to encourage instant messaging as well as getting patients to use it to enter their questions or concerns into the EMR so it shows up for us. Used to be for on-site visits, I'd pay my patients trained to bring a list and they'd hand me the list. Well, they can't do that now, but if they can enter that into the EMR, it makes much better use of the visit. They can also take pictures directly into the portal app, which is on their phone, and those get directed into the EMR, which is great for, for rashes and things. So incredible opportunities for using the technology, not to create the change, but to accelerate the change. Thanks very much, Richard. And uh, I'm hoping that we have Aaron back. Um, he is broadcasting from up uh, Mount Washington um, where they has had some bandwidth issues tonight. Um, and I'm not sure, Aaron, if you're back on with us or not. And not hearing anything from Aaron. Uh, Jern, I, er, I wonder if you have anything to add about uh, your approach to using technology and, and virtual care, how it's changed. Yeah, I think, you know, Richard covered a lot of the, the points and I, I do really want to, in a former career, I was a, a marketing manager for Apple. And one of the things that I really like to hear Richard say was that technology is not about technology. It's about enabling you to do something in this case, change and providing better care. Um, and, and I think one of the things that I found when using virtual care is I can increase my frequency of follow-up. Uh, so in patients who are, you know, recently discharged from, from hospital or were doing a significant medication change, having the ability to see them every couple of days um, just for a quick little check-in is, is actually very significant. Um, on a personal level, the moving to virtual care has also allowed me um, to get a bit better work-life balance. So I wanted to add an extra hour um, practice time with my patients. Um, I currently practice in the afternoons, and so was adding an hour in the morning, instead of having to go in, I can do an hour of virtual, and then I get to walk my dog in the middle and um, get ready for my day before I go in. Um, so I, I, those are just a couple of other examples. I don't know, Daniel, if you have any other thoughts? Yeah, I think um, the technology that we have found uh, really helpful is to partner with our EMR vendor. And there are many third parties that offer secure online booking as well as appointment reminders. So all our, our patients are being reminded a day ahead that they're going to have a telemedicine visit. They're being texted so that they're available and they accept uh, calls from 
call restricted numbers. I think um, that's a change in practice. And a lot of locums, a lot of doctors say, well, listen, I'm not, I'm working from home. Um, the overhead um, it's going to be different. But the challenge is that when you're educating patients for the very first time on how to do a teleconference, uh, a, a virtual visit, a, a telemedicine visit, a doxy visit, a Skype visit, a Zoom visit, um, it doesn't happen automatically. The staff have to take the time to educate the patients. Um, I think it's really important that uh, we use this opportunity to understand our EMR's capabilities. And I've always been a proponent of understanding that EMRs can help with queries, identifying care gaps for patients, and using dashboards, which are visual representation of uh, rosters of patients and their care gaps, to create the opportunity for a virtual visit and to uh, improve and optimize care in a team-based fashion. Thanks, Danielle. I'm just checking again, Aaron, to see if we have you back. I'm here on my phone. <laughs> Thanks, Aaron. Oh, here we are. Uh, you're, you're just the final words, and, and I hope you can uh, uh, hear what we had said there. And um, you're a perfect example of your approach to using technology and virtual care, how it's changed. I thought I would just give a personal experience of lifetime the struggle in dealing with a patient visit. And this is what happens every once in a while. Um, yeah, so I would agree with what's been said already. In our office, we had just launched our office website two weeks before COVID started. And so we also were able to pair that with online uh, appointment booking. And so that took a lot of learning very quickly to figure that out. Well, thanks, everybody. And, and as I'm sure our audience can see, um, one of the challenges to this new normal, this new world of uh, way of doing things is certainly uh, getting used to the technology and being used to be able to have backups. And I believe tonight Aaron has gone from a laptop to an iPad and now finally to a phone, uh, which uh, sort of highlights the need um, to be ready for almost anything in there. So good on you, Aaron, for being able to stay with us. Thank you. Um, I just wanted to move on to another question uh, there, here, and this is uh, for you, Jaron. Um, how many, many care providers are reporting a decrease in patient flow and income? And I'm really curious how you're dealing with and or planning to deal with this challenge. Good question. Um, so I think I'll speak a bit personally and then also sort of from the work that I've been doing uh, with Aaron on the, on the Greater Victoria Task Group, um, so sort of from a regional perspective. Um, so I think obviously for those on the call who are longitudinal care providers, um, they know about the, the big range of impact uh, from some people having visits down 20 to 30% or more to those where volume is actually up. Um, now, I think it's important to point out that this is on a daily basis, um, where it used to be that it might take two to three weeks to get in for a non-urgent patient. In many cases, appointments are now available within a couple of days or even the next day. Um, and earlier I said that's a really good thing. Um, but, you know, this is reflective of a, a significant decrease in the regular ongoing pre-booked care that most of us offer for chronic disease and ongoing management. 
Um, and I think, you know, it's, it's also important to point out that while volume may be flat or even slightly increased, um, as people are at home worried about something and find they can quickly get a virtual appointment, because of various MSP rules, billings are typically significantly down. Um, and, and physicians are also struggling with the income supports offered by various levels of government, facing decreased revenues, but perhaps not enough to qualify for certain supports. Um, behind the scenes, sure, BC family doctors, formerly the SGP and doctors of BC are working with government on um, changes to increase supports for family doctors, but those, you know, will take time. So how do we do things now um, to help financially? Um, so, you know, the, some of the things that I've done and that I've talked to others about, um, I think, is to, to focus a bit more on preventative care. Uh, so finishing the GPSC panel management incentives and then ensuring that targeted populations are seen proactively. Um, I got my MOA to call every patient to get an email address. I wasn't quite ahead of the game. Um, and so we've started regularly updating patients on what's going on in our clinic and how we're still here for them and we can help them. Um, uh, and um, a couple of physicians that I know have even started Facilitation Fridays, where they go through a PSP-funded facilitation cycle every couple of weeks um, for QI or implementing workflow changes such as online booking or email communications, and all that's compensated at sessional rates. Um, I think 2020 is definitely going to be the year that I submit every CDM fee that I know I do the work for, but somehow seem to not always submit. Um, I think for locums, COVID has caused significant impacts. Um, many have seen, many of my former resident colleagues have seen their scheduled work disappear as the physicians they're filling in for are staying put. Um, they're flocking to health authority assessment clinics, administrative work, or signing up with virtual care companies. Um, you know, long-term, I think it's important to acknowledge that in this kind of a situation, um, some will look for opportunities that offer more guaranteed incomes. In fact, in Newfoundland and Labrador, income guarantees have been implemented to ensure um, availability and access to family doctors. Um, you know, in our clinic, like others, we talked about letting go of MOAs and cleaning services. Um, I know some solo practitioners are reevaluating their setup and are looking at maybe starting joining together in small groups because um, now they can share one office as they're only going to be in person a couple of days a week. Um, larger clinics are looking at bringing in allied health as part of the PCN rollout because suddenly now they don't have as many people in the office and they can do that. So I think, you know, we're all in different situations and the path forward is going to be a bit different for each of us. Um, but fundamentally, I think now's the time to take some time to think about how you want to practice and think about those things that you never seem to have time to do. Um, take the time, <laughs> plan it out, how you're going to get back into it. Daniel, I know that you've been thinking about uh, this for much longer than for the pandemic. I'm curious to what your thoughts are. Well, certainly this is uh, not a sprint. Um, we got all got over that in March, but um, as this goes into April and May, it's going to be a marathon. And now more than ever, we need uh, our local divisions. We need GPSC. We need family doctors of BC and the doctors of BC to understand that despite the fact that we're essential service and that we're frontline workers, uh, not only does the stress happen about our safety for ourselves and our family, but the stress economically is just overwhelming. It's the lack of stability and security uh, in the volume of patients, the 
appointment bookings. It's the need to really rely on identifying those care gaps and um, rationally choosing who you work with, making sure it's justifiable, making sure that it's appropriate uh, when you do a telemedicine visit. A lot of the panelists here, just like myself, short term had a solution of focusing on uh, doing the complex care visits and mental health visits that we can do via telemedicine. But I think a lot of us are also looking towards our chronic disease panels. We ourselves work with PSP. We met with our, our facilitator and developed some action plans and was were funded for it. But I think the bottom line is that it's gonna take a monumental systematic approach that is going to have to shift from a reactive approach where patients walk through the door and they said, I have this problem, I want to talk about it, uh, to more planned proactive care. And what I think needs to happen is that uh, PSP, local user groups from the divisions, uh, all the physicians, uh, we need extra training and support on our EMR mining for identifying care gaps. We need to share our experience as super users. And I, I also think that we have to change the way we look at our vulnerable patients. Uh, we, for example, looked at our high-risk patients for COVID. We looked at our complex care patients, patients with respiratory diseases, and we uh, made sure that they had their medications. Uh, we had a dashboard widget that we developed to identify patients with any incentive billing or any chronic disease code that we're going to have a refill coming up within the next month. And this dashboard item has been fantastic for us to work as a team of doctors. And I can't emphasize that enough that um, in this time of isolation, in this time of social distancing, when you are stuck behind a computer screen and your patient, instead of seeing your colleague in the corridor or having a lunch and learn, or instead of um, having the normal things we do as family doctors, we need some normalcy. And so our WhatsApp uh, clinician group where we posted guidelines, we posted latest updates, um, it was really, really helpful. And having our teleconferences was uh, important to help us identify areas and ideas to keep up some of the patient flow and volume. Because I think that long-term, this marathon stress from an economic point of view is going to wear on, on physicians. It's going to wear on locums not having security. It's going to wear on owners who have to maintain the bricks and mortar costs. Uh, we can't let go our MOAs because if we let them go, um, that's the most expensive part of our business to train good individuals. And when this pandemic settles where social distancing will, will be reduced, yes, there'll be more telemedicine, but we need to have the staff and the trained staff ready to take care of the, the locums and the patients and all the doctors in our offices. So I think from a financial point of view, I'd like to summarize, it's a big deal and we need extra help and we need to have a collaborative approach, a systematic approach. We need to look at funding models that need to switch because um, our old traditional models with, which fit the bill and, you know, um, locums working doctor's office, that was based on a traditional funding model, but we're going to have to shift. And that's why we need support from the government. Otherwise, family practice is going to have a hard time in the future in terms of uh, economic uh, point of view. You're muted, Piers. Yep. Aaron and Jaron, um, did you have any quick comments, Aaron? Yeah, thanks, Bruce. Um, I would agree with everything Daniel said. Um, I think there's a real risk of the primary care infrastructure collapsing um, because of the funding model. At the same time, I, I do see this as an opportunity that will force a change 
uh, a recognition of the importance of sustaining primary care infrastructure uh, with uh, by forcing a new funding model. It, it was as Daniel and any other person in the on the call or on the webinar knows, maintaining a primary care medical or patient medical home is almost unsustainable and free for service. It was marginally sustainable before, but now it's really unsustainable. And so I think now is the time to really turn up the pressure on how to change that dynamic because when the pandemic settles and social distancing is, is relaxed and people are returning to our offices, if we've had to let our MOAs go, if we've had to close our offices, if there's no one for anywhere to go to, you can't just turn that over overnight. And so I think there needs to be this year's worth of bridge financing to keep these doors open, to keep the staff engaged and employed, um, because, yeah, the financial stress is only going to build. You can only bill your complex care fees once a year, and you can't build them five times a year. <laughs> That's how it would have to happen to keep doing this the way we've been patchwork quilting it. I was just going to say, as an independent um, uh, business uh, person, um, we're so used to uh, being independent and relying on ourselves. As physicians, we're so used to relying on ourselves. Now more than ever, we should be collaborating. So uh, one of the things that has kept me sane is that um, a WhatsApp group of clinic owners, of nearby clinic owners, has been really helpful to just to bounce some ideas around, to validate our concerns and fears, to kind of talk about their strategies and to share. And we got we to gotta reach out in this time of, um, of turmoil because um, we, we don't have it all solved ourselves. We have to collaborate. Thanks, Daniel, and everybody. It's uh, certainly highlights uh, that transition is necessary and this is an opportunity. Um, and, I, you know, I, one thing that strikes me uh, moving into the future, and you spoke to the business uh, end of things in many cases, but uh, I'm really curious what you think about what's going to happen with patient care in the future. And maybe, Daniel, you want to touch on that first? Sure. Um, one concept I'd like to talk about is uh, population health management, which I alluded to before. So I think that because um, patients are afraid to come into the office and because we have a new opportunity to reach out to patients and to take care of rosters, I think that we have to work as teams, uh, whether you have an MOA uh, working alongside our nurse, and we have a wonderful brand new nurse who we onboarded and are in training. Uh, you have to work with chronic disease coordinators who can use the MR to support physicians in providing direct patient care. So for example, we have a, uh, a dashboard on our EMR that can identify patients with A1C out of range with CKD. We have patients uh, who we could I talk to about having heart failure, reduced ejection fraction, HEF-REF, who are missing triple therapy. And, you know, no physician can do that by themselves, but having a nurse, a chronic disease coordinator, um, having that conversation to move those patients along the continuum of change, I think that's going to be really helpful. We have to think of novel methods of engaging these patients. Um, we all have to have um, really fast typing skills or voice dictation uh, to be able to email our patients patient education handouts. And we have to be able to digest useful patient generated data. Patients are changing. Patients say, you know, doctor, I, I don't really want to go and take a blood pressure at the pharmacy. Um, I bought a machine myself. How do I read these numbers? So a blood pressure diary from Hypertension Canada, a um, uh, sick day medication list that we need to have at our fingertips to email patients. I think that's really something that we need to look towards. And finally, in terms of education, we have to think outside the box. Maybe we can hand off in a virtual waiting room uh, uh, 
some CDM education from a nurse educator, a pharmacist doing a med review, and then partnering with a physician. But the problem is that the codes aren't there yet. And I think that um, the powers that be should kind of consider uh, maybe this is an opportunity to reach out, strengthen connections. I heard it from one of my colleagues. He said it well. Strengthen the connection with our complex, frail, and chronic disease patients through regular proactive care. I think some of the unintended consequences of this COVID pandemic is going to be on patient and physician attitudes. I'd like to end on the fact that patients are going to be more self-reliant. They're going to um, wonder about their health. They're going to uh, come to the doctor with some questions about how do I manage this myself? And um, they are willing, I find, to do things virtually and try new things. And I had a patient today just jump up and down. And she goes, oh my God, I can see you on, on, my, on a, my video conference. So that was just a fantastic moment. Um, I was able to talk to a patient about advanced care planning uh, with their father in hospital um, on the phone. Uh, and I think the last thing is the changing attitudes of physicians. Um, I think the challenge is to automatically go to a place of insecurity. I need to withdraw. I need to, I'm working from home. I want more convenience. I want a different idea. But we have to remember the traditional face-to-face -face collegiality, the traditional hub where all patients actually came from, the bricks and mortar, which actually developed a clinician's practice. It developed the patient load. We have to understand that that's valuable and that collegiality. The pandemic should not change the way we fundamentally work with each other from a collegial point of view. It may have to change the working arrangements slowly but surely, but we need support. Otherwise, the future of family practice will be threatened. And I think that um, it's an opportunity, as um, Jaron said, uh, we need to really carefully think about the work-life balance and how are we going to deal with this marathon of stress over a long period of time? Thanks, Daniel. And, and uh, you mentioned Jaron. And uh, Jaron, you're coming from the early end of the spectrum. And so this may be the new normal for the rest of your practice life. And I'm really curious to hear what you think about uh, what patient care is going to look like in the future. Well, I think, so I don't have a crystal ball. Um, I certainly think that, like everyone else, I, I know it's going to be different. Um, I know that there's going to be um, a lot less uh, physical contact, at least for, you know, the next little while. Um, I, I think one of the, th a couple of the themes that we've heard tonight are um, certainly leveraging the use of technology uh, where appropriate, um, and also using, um, maybe recognizing that, that in medicine, I think sort of like education has gone through a transformation from the, the lecturer being the sage on the stage to the guide at the side. And so um, a physician helping a patient through um, facilitating their medical journey uh, through the course of their life. Um, and, and certainly acting as a knowledge repository, um, but, but working with them, um, you know, in the way that they need. So whether that's, you know, the, the physician um, working with a team that has uh, chronic disease nurses or, or a social worker or, or what have you, um, I think certainly this is an opportunity in COVID. We've had sort of a fundamental shift in how primary care delivery is taking place over a very short period of time. I know coming into this, the ministry had just launched its virtual care strategy and they were hoping, you know, that maybe, oh, we can get 10 or 20% of physicians using virtual care um, in the next year. And looking at numbers, at least in Greater Victoria, we went from 
from 5% virtual care to 95% in three weeks. Um, so there's, there's, I think these, the, this is, as others have said, an opportunity to have these conversations and everyone's having these conversations. So I think it's, it's a bit of an exciting time. Um, I don't have enough knowledge and, and history to know um, a lot of all of the nuance, um, but I'm, I'm excited about the opportunity. Thanks, Jaron. And um, you know, we've had four questions that have been asked to our panel, and they've been kind enough to give their their thoughts. Um, we have a lot of questions, um, and some of the questions, as I mentioned, may not be questions that you, as a panel, uh, feel qualified to answer. Um, however, you may have been in a situation where you have found out an answer. So um, while some of them, as I mentioned, may relate to public health, I'd certainly be interested to ask the questions. And if you don't have an answer, these are questions that we will pass off to a future webinar where uh, we will have public health people that may be able to answer them. So um, again, to the audience, please bear with our panel. And if they don't know, uh, we will certainly find out the answer. So the, the first question is, to any of you, um, but probably to those that have opened up your practice already and um, are seeing patients. Um, if a patient that entered my clinic tests positive for COVID, is 48 hours enough to declare an office space clean again? So I'm curious if any of you uh, Richard, you've opened up your practice and Daniel to seeing some patients in person. Have you heard of um, what your uh, what you will do if a patient does test positive, or have you thought about that? Or where will you go for an answer if you don't know? Uh, so first thing is um, our clinic has done a collegial thing. Every doctor has um, selected the half day of the week that they will see all of their in-person patients. So um, our our, our schedule is booked Monday to Friday, where we each take turns covering patients. After each patient, uh, there is a cleanup by MOA with PPE, and um, we only have dirty rooms and uh, we uh, and versus clean rooms. So I think that's very important. Uh, who would I go to uh, with that particular question? Is immediately I would call the medical health officer and review that case, and um, we'd kind of immediately share the information with regards to having a, a teleconference that's secure uh, with using WhatsApp with our group. But I personally think that um, it's something that might come up at any time and we have to get help from the specialists. There, there's a race line where one could ask that question. There's a medical health officer that you could ask those questions to. So I, I won't pretend. I already did a disclosure. I, haven't, I know nothing. So I hope that answer is good enough. <laughs> Thanks, Daniel. And Richard, did you have any thoughts as to how your office would approach that? What we're what we're currently doing is assuming every patient may be a carrier of COVID. And so after they leave the room, all surfaces that have been touched by the patient are disinfected in between every patient. Uh, we've stripped down the room, so it's basically a chair, an exam table, and whether we've used touched a, an otoscope wearing our gloves or not, then we would indicate which specific equipment needs to be cleaned. This is where we'll likely be looking for direction for protocols from public health. 
about how to do this going forward as we ease the restrictions and start increasing the number of patients. Thanks. And so, you know, I think uh, we will pass that question on to public health as well and, and have more answers with that for that one specifically. There was a question on how are you currently cleaning your blood pressure cuffs? We're currently not using our blood pressure cuffs. We're having patients do their own blood pressure readings. But what we were thinking when we, the idea of having an automated blood pressure cuff in the waiting room for patients is there would be a, some, some wipes of sanitizers that patients could uh, disinfect the, the, the ring that they put their, their arm through and the touch pad. Okay, thank you. Um, and again, that may be something that uh, the public health experts may have some specific recommendations on. Um, a technical question. Um, do patients tend to record or video record telemedicine sessions? Is this an issue with you? Aaron, you looked like you were uh, surprised at that one. Uh, but does anyone have any comments to that? I can. I just thought it was a great question. I hadn't thought of that before. Um, I did have one patient one time bring their phone in and sort of record our visit unknowingly, and I eventually had to call them on it, but that was in person. I don't know. So we use uh, DoxyMe uh, for our video, which I actually prefer the phone. Um, and I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure how you would know that, to be honest. Um, that's a great question. I guess I'll call CMPA. <laughs> yeah. So I think you have to assume that um, all recordings like this is being recorded. Um, so similarly, all your patient interactions could be recorded. Um, and, and, and I mean, it could be in person, as Aaron says, um, if someone brings their phone in. I, I know CMPA has an article about it. I just can't, I, I haven't read it that recently. Um, and uh, I believe in Canada, you don't have to tell the other party that you're recording, so they can do it without your knowledge. But you should assume. Yes. Okay. Thank you. So a question has come up around... Um, routine uh, screening. So for driver's medicals, can we see clients now for driver's medicals? Have you seen them? I believe I've heard from ICBC contacts that they're not requiring driver's medicals at this time. They're not uh, sending them out. They're not expecting them to be done. But I'm curious if any of you have had any experience with that request specifically. No, it's very clear that they don't need to be done at this point. And once the restrictions have been relaxed, then we will be recalling people for those visits. And along a similar line, but, but probably a, a little bit more urgent, are WCB, our, our WorkSafe um, visits for injuries. Mm -hmm. Our approach is that if patient needs to be seen to provide appropriate medical care and that delaying their on-site assessment of a physical examination for pain of an injured joint, for example, would possibly result in harm to the patient, then we will see them on-site using appropriate PPE precautions. And, and we will be having a WorkSafe specific uh, webinar that's addressing uh, patient flow and offers procedures coming up. 
um, to address that and even more detailed questions about WorkSafe. So thanks for that, Richard. Um, a question for technology again. Uh, what program are you using, if any, and I think, Daniel, you referred to this, uh, for automated text reminders? Uh, and if so, is setting it up very easy? I've, uh, over the years, uh, experimented with uh, various text reminders, and uh, many of the third-party vendors that partner with your EMR um, can review things. What we settled on um, to avoid spam texting and to avoid any you know, concern about that is to individualize the text using a program line two. And uh, line two has very, been very instrumental during this pandemic because uh, you can text people from uh, your phone. You can call using uh, uh, line two with a different phone number from your cell phone, uh, your computer, you can text. So in terms of automation, uh, we've just selected to be more specific and targeted. Um, and um, in the past, we did uh, mass text, but I didn't find it that helpful uh, for the for the for our purposes. And Aaron, you were and Jaron, you were getting your clinic just up and going with websites and things like that. Had you considered uh, text messaging and or even doing the automated text messaging? I think of dentist's office and how much farther they were ahead of us in in all this. Um, with emails and text message reminders and such. But Aaron and Jaron, any thoughts there? So, so it's Aaron. We use MedAccess, and so MedAccess is partnered with Chronometric. Uh, and so we had some, they actually have a very user-friendly uh, dashboard to customize however you reach out with your patients. Uh, it, it took someone like me only about 20 minutes to figure it out with some guidance from the from the head office in Montreal. So, um, it's actually really helpful, and you can set the frequency of the text reminders. You can have just text. You can have email. You can have phone. You can have a combination of them. You can do it three times. You, you can customize it all. And with the premium package, which, of course, you have to pay for if it's anything useful, uh, you can then target the message to the type of appointment that the person has booked. So for the video visit, we target the message um, you can assign a specific message to each video or visit type in the appointment schedule. So that's really helpful for people who book online, but the uh, text reminders actually do that. It's done separately for people who book, have a scheduled appointment, uh, no matter how they booked. So it's quite slick, actually. I was going to say that whatever new protocol you have in place, um, Oftentimes, it's one person who's doing it at the office, and that is you're voluntold to do it. But um, I'm very fortunate. My office, a lot of people have stepped up. Um, they knew how much stress everyone was going through. And it's been really a great team-building experience where one physician will take a lead on a certain area, for example, developing a doxy launch page for the clinic that has all the doctors that patients can choose from, uh, to writing protocols on which type of inpatient uh, patients should be seen so that MOAs could use it as a screening device. Um, I think that all the clinicians have stepped up and taken a, a bite out of the huge number of protocols and policies that have to be done. So the message is um, don't do it all alone because uh, uh, you'll lose all your hair. <laughs> and I, I just flag for folks too that the doctor's technology office here in DC has done a really great job of um, looking into all these 
different platforms for different processes and uh, is worth visiting for that website uh, with some of their um, their investigation. Yes, Richard. Just another use for the text reminders. We're using the profile EMR and the, the text messaging is embedded in the EMR similar to MedAccess. But booking appointments, most of the times we would book appointments as they're leaving and they would get the appointment information written on an appointment card. Well, now after we're finished a virtual visit, we're asking them to phone in to book their follow-up appointments and the staff can do a, a typing template into a text message that auto-populates with the appointment date and time that gets sent to the patient. Saves very the nice. patient having to write it down. It's very nice having that integrated into the program um, that both Aaron and Richard described in there. A, a question back to uh, personal uh, protection um, equipment. Uh, so in your clinic, do you ask all patients to wear face coverings um, and do you wear a mask when you're seeing a patient um, and do you wear eye protection so, so our, the vancouver divisions have been really good about sending uh, updates everyone's sending us updates in fact every day every hour you get update so the ppe requirements are suggesting i wear goggles face shield masks gloves uh, our office has scrubs um, our office has disposable um, shower caps, um, so we, and we do ask patients to come. But Jaron, what do you do? Um, well, in Victoria, we've created um, six regional clinics across the city for physical exam. Uh, we call them CAPE clinics. And so what we do is we refer our patients who need a physical exam to those locations, and they've been provided with PPE um, by the ministry slash health authority. Um, and they have infection control procedures in place and extra cleaning, and they see patients in a slow, careful, controlled manner. So. Yeah, Daniel. So um, I was looking through Slido, and I really wanted to address um, that being a locum is really challenging this time period. I feel that um, it must be uh, extra stress uh, because of the uncertainty. Uh, what I did want to say as a clinic uh, manager is that it also is very stressful. And I think that in the future, we're going to have to look at a new model, a new uh, system. But it boils down to a professional commitment and a business relationship. Uh, when you're a clinic director, I promise to take care of everything for you so you don't have to worry about it. Uh, without your help, without your overhead fees, we can't run the clinic. I think the issue is that running clinic is expensive, margins are slim. Telemedicine is not necessarily less time intensive. Actually, it takes a lot of time for staff. Um, I think the original reason why we have rosters is the bricks and mortar model helped people to get a, a roster. And I think that if we as clinic owners now don't invest in keeping our staff, when this is, pandemic is going to change, when people come back to work, um, they're not going to have everything that's there. So I think what we need is... Um, um, we need business analyst support. We need Vancouver divisions, uh, divisions from uh, all the areas to help local physicians. We need doctors of BC support. Um, we need family doctor support to understand this because we just basically got through six weeks of trying to scramble to deal with things. No one's ready to discuss this now, but it's a great question. It's an important question that's realistic from both sides, but I think we just can't rush into it. We need more support. Thanks, Daniel. And I just wanted to flag to the audience that we are at 8 o'clock. Um, this uh, 
webinar is going to continue. Our uh, panel is graciously um, uh, willing to stay on and continue answering your questions. And, and there are a lot of questions uh, still. And so I anticipate we won't get to them all, but we'll try to move through as many of them as we can. So people are quite welcome to stay on. Um, and also, uh, if you do have to sign off, uh, please uh, fill in the evaluation form when you go, and thank you for attending. Uh, so to those that are continuing on, and again, thank you to the panel. Um, very quickly, um, and again, I, I acknowledge that these are from your own personal experience and may not be uh, what is recommended, and, and I would go to doctor's technology office to look at their recommendations. But um, what are you using for a secure email system uh, for your clinic? Or if you are, um, I'm curious if, if, if you've identified one through some of the research that you've done. We're using MailChimp for our mass emails to a large number of patients. And to email to an individual patient, we're using the email functionality that's within profile. And that's a secure system in profile. Yes. Okay. Aaron, are, are you, um, or Jaron, are you, have any thoughts at your clinic? Um, so we were looking into this actually just before COVID. Um, and the one that I found that would incorporate with our EMR, um, so we use MedAccess as well. So it's called Health Myself. Um, and so it's an online portal, so patients can go and receive messages in it, and it integrates to a certain extent with your EMR. Um, I've also, um, I originally trained in Alberta, um, and so they have the doctor-to-doctor -doctor, um, secure email solution that I notice is being used by Providence, I think, healthcare, um, on the mainland. Um and I know that the ministry is also looking at, at security. There's lots of people, DTO, <laughs> looking at secure email. Um, so I think we're sort of on the cusp of having maybe a bit of a provincial solution because um, right now it's sort of a mishmash. And, and certainly just if people aren't aware. So the issues with email from a security perspective um, are basically it has to go through a bunch of hops. So it goes from your computer to your mail server and then from your mail server to the recipient's mail server and then from the recipient's mail server to their computer. And anywhere along there um, potentially could be compromised. So email by itself is not considered secure um, unless you can guarantee that whole connection. Um, so in some respects, actually, instant messaging, like if you're using an iPhone or something that has end-to-end -end encryption, is much more secure than email um, because it is a secure channel. Um, sorry, that was a bit of a tangent. No, that's okay. I uh, appreciate a very thorough answer. And obviously, you've done some research into it, so I appreciate that. You know, one question that came up, and I hear this all the time, and I can certainly remember uh, that there was an issue with my patients. Um, telehealth or video conferencing with patients that don't have email or elderly patients who are, um, are technically challenged and or illiterate, um, certainly, um, that doesn't mean that they have to be elderly, but um, do you have any solutions other than falling back on the telephone uh, that you've tried uh, for virtual care for your patients? If I can maybe continue a couple that I've 
tried personally. Um, so one is obviously using a, um, a family member <laughs> who has a cell phone um, if you need to do a video portion. Certainly number one is falling back on the telephone. Um, during COVID, family members can be hard to come across, especially in, in care facilities. Um, but the other one is it, um, some of the pharmacies that have those dispenser robots um, that have screens on them. Um, what I found in talking to the pharmacies is there's actually a camera built in and you can talk to the patient through that robot. Um, there's a physician portal that you can get access to. So if you know your patients have that, um, and usually it's the older patients who have the challenges with this, um, then that might be an option that's worth considering. So things that we've done is we've developed a one-pager a handout for patients, whichever platform the physician chooses to use. But obviously, this is a gap that DTO or third parties that um, I remember that uh, different uh, reps used to come and visit us in the office who we never see any longer. But, you know, there is a role to partner to kind of help their general population use uh, telemedicine more efficiently and more effectively. I think we have to think outside the box um, to develop easier ways that patients can access care. And Richard, you looked like you had a comment. I've actually been surprised at how readily some of the elderly patients are taking on to the technology. If they have a smartphone, they don't need to use email because they just get texted a link and they just click on the link and it there's just a couple steps for them to do. So mm -hmm. I've been actually very surprised at how well they're adapting to it. Mm -hmm. And thanks, everybody. And I certainly know that my 89-year-old uh, mother would be challenged. And yet, to your point, Richard, she's getting used to using her smartphone, which is great to see. Um, so uh, I, there's, I think... Uh, a tie-on, but I'm not sure that it was fully answered. Um, and it goes back to seeing patients in person and PPEs. Um, what are people doing for seeing patients in person, um, especially with given the asymptomatic transmission? Are you requiring masks for everyone uh, coming in? Um, or um, the same type of thing goes for uh, companions with patients, uh, unless, of course, it's a minor child. Uh, so what are your protocols for those two things? Masks for everyone, and uh, are you allowing any companions? We're allowing a companion, if obviously if they're a child or if they need to have a companion. Um, we're not seeing any symptomatic people, like fevers, coughs, runny nose, sore throats. Those are all going to the COVID center. So we're only seeing asymptomatic people. So we're just using contact precautions. We're not using screens or masks for everybody. Daniel, any thoughts in your office? Uh, patients have been watching the news. Uh, they're already coming with masks. And if they don't, we provide them with a surgical mask. So everyone comes in. And uh, we certainly are asking uh, families to have one companion uh, to come in. Um, and we do make exceptions, but um, the idea is to limit exposure. One other technique we do is we do a pre-screening phone call, gather all the history and data first, and we only do the physical exams, such as check if it's otitis externa, what you have to check, or, or do, uh, do something as minimally as possible. So we're trying to minimize exposure and keep the rooms um, cleaned and separate. 
And I, I think the importance of that pre-assessment phone call or some method of triage, you know, uh, going up to someone in the parking lot in their car, telling them to wait, and then doing an assessment questionnaire is really important. And I have heard of offices where there is no pre-assessment done. People are just told to come on in. So I uh, certainly appreciate your mentioning that, that Daniel. I think it's really important. Um, I think that's very important. You can't just leave it to the patient to say to the staff they're not having any symptoms. We do right. visit first and then just the on-site if they actually need assessment. I think it's going to be really important in this era of um, telemedicine. Um, it actually can go faster than one would expect, but we still have to document. So it's a very clear plan that's documented and um, we can share the plan with other colleagues. So I think that we have to think outside the box. Many of us are contracting, but we might actually have to hire medical scribes so they can um, make sure they're typing as we go along and ask patients permission. Uh, do I have verbal permission to do this? I'm going to send you the fillable PDF electronic consent form from the CMPA. Plus, I have a medical scribe on the phone typing everything that goes along. That can go a long way to um, make the isolation less because you're working with a colleague on the phone, as well as um, it can capture all the data uh, quite nicely. And, and Jaron, you might be um, more closely linked with this uh, through some of the work that you've done, but um, do you have any idea or have you heard anything about uh, whether or not they might put um, age modifications on virtual visits like they do with in-person visits? Yeah, it's certainly, um, so I'm on the board of the um, BC Family Doctors, formerly the SGP, um, and it's certainly something that um, uh, BC Family Doctors has heard uh, <laughs> a lot of people talk about. Um, and, and, and also I've, I've heard that from the ministry's um, virtual care team because um, they really want to make things sort of a flat, don't have any perverse incentives um, directing unsafe practices potentially. Um, so I, I, I think um, we should hear on that soon. Um, but initial things I've heard are supportive of that. Great. And soon Great. as in, yeah, days or weeks. Things are happening a lot faster. Um, yeah, I mean, everything now it is, right? Now it's, <laughs> now it's weeks. Um, so thanks. Uh, and um, now I don't know what the status is of each of your practices and whether or not you actually closed down for a while. But I wondered if uh, you know of any protocols for reopening a family practice office that's been closed to clinic visits during the pandemic. Um, so curious if any of you actually did close and, and uh, how you went about reopening, uh, whether it's notifying patients, setting things up, uh, um, setting a new protocol. Sure, go ahead, Aaron. So uh, as I mentioned earlier, we, we did close um, on March 17th and uh, at, our, at our now weekly scheduled Zoom conferences with my colleagues and our staff, we've been talking about what that might look like if we were to reopen. As Jared mentioned, in our community in Victoria, we have these community assessment clinics that we can refer patients to. So there's not quite the same time pressure um, as maybe in smaller communities or, or communities that don't have that facility. Um, but we've talked about what that might look like. Um, we also asked that same question today, which is, uh, it would be great if someone had some protocols as to, number one, what is the trigger to uh, be opening physician offices? 
um, if you're not opening barbershops and um, uh, and tattoo parlors like they are in Georgia. Um, so what's the trigger from a public health point of view? And then what's the practical way of installing plexiglass all over your front counter? How do you manage your visa machine for your um, for your pieces of paper that you're not handing out anymore? Um, how do you uh, do the cleaning protocols that people are already doing? So if you've been doing it, you've probably refined it. But if you haven't been doing it at all, you're starting from scratch, just like uh, Daniel and Richard were uh, two months ago or a month and a half ago. So I think it would be really helpful to have some universal uh, protocols of these are the very basic steps. And some of the things we've developed through the Cape Clinic work, uh, we have some of that information already. And so I think we're going to try to refine that. Um, but again, I don't think any, our office was talking about maybe August. So I think really it's around why are you thinking of reopening? And is that something that because uh, once you start that, it's a difficult process if you get it wrong for the first couple of weeks and then you have an outbreak. So you have to be really careful about evaluating why you want to do that and how you're going to do it. And Daniel, did you shut down your office uh, and then reopen? Um, I needed to still pay my mortgage, so no. <laughs> okay. uh, we didn't shut down. We kept going. We kept working. Uh, we did our best. We It was part of our coping mechanism to still see patients. Uh, so we kept open and we let every doctor choose what they wanted to do. And I'm just lucky I have a great team. How about you, Richard? Similar to Daniel, we stayed open. We just switched to all virtual and saw patients that needed to be seen on site and referred all patients that were symptomatic to the COVID center. Yeah. Sometimes the... Uh practical reality is you have to do what you have to do um, and uh, certainly I respect that in there even though it can be risky at times um, it, we also have to think about the risk of not seeing patients um, I had one patient that I did a virtual visit with and he showed me the, a lump on his chest it looked like it was probably a a, a, a large sebaceous cyst but it had, it was a little unusual had him come in and decide to take it out and it turned out to be lymphoma. Yeah. So we have to look at the risk of, of not treating people as well. Yeah. Yes, Daniel. On site when they should be seen. I think yeah. that there's been a great job from the Canadian Medical Association, um, MD management. They're no longer together, but uh, MD management put together a, a financial literacy package. And I think that what I wanted to say is that uh, we, we've kind of glossed over the fact that um, many of us are in a business, but we're not that business savvy. And it would have been lovely to get some assistance or help to navigate how are you going to prove that you qualify for the Canadian uh, wage subsidy program? Uh, or does your corporation apply or how do they apply for it? So I think what I'm trying to say is that for us to continue this long-term marathon, we need to have things taken care of to reduce our stress. And we have to have a collaborative team, a supportive a network of other people. We have to have divisions and um, support from Doctors of BC. And we have to have financial supports and guidance because this is all new for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, just go ahead, Aaron. Let's say on to that, I... Um... I procrastinated the looking into the wage subsidy for the past three or four weeks because Dr. Easterbrook kept sending me stuff to do. Um, but um, what I eventually settled on as I looked into it was that I don't really understand what an arm's length 
employee is or a non-arm's length employee is because all my employees do have arms. But um, I just sent to my accountant and she said, oh, yeah, we can do that for you. She sent me, I, just give me a summary of your billings from these months and these months and we'll we'll take care of it. And I said, that's the best news I heard all month. So, so maybe to your point earlier about leaning on other people um, to take some of the stress, uh, obviously I'm going to pay for that at some point in my account, but it's probably going to be worth it. So um, just a little small tip there. It's certainly one thing that these questions and, and your answers and um, the value that I'm hearing from your experience highlights to me is that, you know, we could all use support during these times, whether it's personal support for our wellness or, or as Daniel, you were mentioning your, the challenges of being a business person when you really don't know what you're doing um, and or figuring out workflow and other things. And, uh, you know, I think this is the time that we should really be looking at reaching out for support. Doctors Technology Office can connect you with uh, peer mentors, uh, such as people you see here and others uh, who can offer specific support and practice support program, offers uh, peer mentors and coaches to help support, as well as the you know, traditional supports. Daniel and others um, have mentioned the divisions, um, and um, certainly the supports are out there. Uh, just going and asking for them is so key. Um, and that can be arranged for you. Richard, you had a comment. Yeah, I'd just like to to, to segue that into a comment about asking for help. One of the great things about this situation is the sheer volume and magnitude of change has forced us to get outside of our clinics and start collaborating with each other. And it's not just the formal organizations, but there's so many innovations and changes that our colleagues are doing and none of us are as smart as all of us. And I just encourage everybody to reach outside your clinic to other clinics in your area and, and beyond people that are using the same EMRs than you, form up little user groups and start collaborating with each other instead of what we've done historically, which has just worked in silos, um, everybody reinventing their own wheels. There's so much to be gained by collaboration. And I would like to put in a plug for developing some tools and platforms that will facilitate collaboration and sharing of information. Changes an incredible amount of work, particularly the, the details to make it work really smoothly. And if we can share some of those details and nitty gritties about how to do the change, it'll make everybody's world go a lot smoother. I, I agree and certainly to Richard's comment, uh, be on the lookout uh, for some notice of um, platforms that we can use and methods we can use to collaborate. So thank you for bringing that up, Richard. Uh, I'm curious uh, into the next question, and I know this has been something that's been going on for some time now. Um, uh, there are other uh, virtual platforms that are out there that are uh, acting like walk-in clinics. And uh, I'm curious if any of you have had that experience where your patients are attending these virtual walk-in clinics uh, or these virtual platforms and um, what your experience is with that and how you're responding to it. Sure, go ahead, Richard. Sure. So uh, we've had patients using some of these virtual platforms for the past year and sometimes even our own patients then commenting about it on social media about how great it is. 
And we've just been waiting for the day when we can start our own virtual after hours clinic. And the moment we do that and make ourselves available, be able to send uh, reminders to all those people, or emails, letting them know of the service that we have now available. I think that these, these other platforms have uh, filled a void, a gap that was there because up until COVID, the reality is that most family practice clinics were about 10 years behind the times compared to similar professions and like dentists, for example. And so this has forced us to do what we, we could and should have been doing all along about making ourselves more available. The reality is, was we didn't have the motivation and the incentive and the tools, but now we have that and we can fill in the gap and start providing our own virtual after hours service. And I think as we do that, that patients would prefer to get their care from a clinic where all their records are and where they, they know them. And the, the demand for these virtual only clinics and walk-in clinics will decrease as physicians start taking care of, are able to take better care and more continuous care of their own patients during, during hours because they'll have more capacity as well as after hours. And if I could add that I think a spin-off of this in terms of the future of primary care is that that combined with doing more virtual visits and a rough estimate I've done of my practice of tallies at the end of my day is about 50% of my patients ideally could be seen virtually. That as well as physicians will be able to do some of their shifts remotely, which will then increase the capacity of a brick and mortar clinic to have more physicians associated with them, which will reduce the cost, fixed cost per physician. Uh, I think that those three things combined will decrease the number of unattached patients, will decrease the demand for virtual only and walk-in clinics, and we'll actually see an increase in the return of walk-in and virtual only physicians to full service brick and mortar practice in the long run. So I think in, in the long term, it's, it's going to be very beneficial for primary care. It makes sense what you're saying, Richard. I 100% agree with you. We just have to fix the physician shortage so that the economies of scale can occur. Yes. Part of that will be addressed by the increased capacity of virtual visits. Also, the fact that when you're working remotely, you, don't, you reduce commute time, which could be put towards direct patient care. And I think the other efficiencies from electronic communication will also help to increase capacity. Yeah, I, um, again, you know, it just emphasizes that we need to be able to change with the times. Um, and uh, if we don't, um, there are others to fill those gaps in there. And um, I, I just wanted to acknowledge that um, as a moderator tonight, um, we've had some technical challenges uh, in the beginning, and I wanted to compliment my panel for uh, rising to the challenge and to the support people behind the scenes for doing that. As a moderator, I have never had to deal with as many questions um, for any one of the other webinars as I've had to deal with tonight. So to the audience, I really appreciate and kudos to you for asking all these questions. And I feel very badly that we've run out of time. Um, 
but uh, I'm hoping that from each of you, we could have um, one or two key messages um, that uh, you'd like to pass on to the audience. And, and maybe we could start uh, with uh, Dr. Childs and, um, and then have Dr. Easterbrook and Dr. Newey and finally Dr. Welsh. Um, or in whatever other you go with. But Aaron, uh, would you like to start? Thanks, Bruce. I think a lot of my sort of messages have kind of been covered, actually. Um, I was thinking about this earlier. As, um, uh, and I think I think one of the things that the, this situation has really highlighted is all the inefficiencies that exist in our current medical care and just the waste, uh, the waste of visits, the waste of money and people traveling to your office. The waste of um, various protocols that exist purely for inpatient interaction, which right now people are finding a workaround for. So why do we have to do it the other way in the first place? So I really hope that we can address a lot of these inefficiencies by asking why do we have to do it this way or even at all. I think the driver's medical is a great example. Um, why are we using physician resource time necessarily to do something that is a, a transportation thing that doesn't have a lot of great evidence uh, purely based on age. You know, there's a lot of things that I think we can use to use the pandemic lens to say, why do we still have to do it this way? And I think that's really an innovation, uh, the beginning of an innovation um, challenge. And so I, I'm, I'm really hopeful, actually. And then to Richard's point, I'm hopeful that the increased capacity and the efficiencies that we can get um, Will really help us to address the uh, attachment challenge, um, and I also hope that we, right now there's a lot of funding and time and energy and dedication being put towards the COVID problem. But if we could switch that to COVID, the disease of COVID becoming the disease of attach unattachment, that we can hopefully um, pursue that with the same um, with the same vigor. Thanks, Aaron and Jaron. Any quick thoughts? Yeah, I think just building on what on what Aaron said that, you know, one of the things that I've really experienced is that there's tremendous appetite right now to have these conversations and to a willingness to revisit things. It's all, you know, to, to Aaron's point, it's almost like we're doing choosing wisely for our practices um, and for the way that we do things at a, at a community or system approach. And so I think that if if people want to see change and, and looking at all the questions on the Slido, it seems like people do want to see change, um, then work with your division. Now's the time to get involved and, and stand up and because people are willing to listen at the health authorities, at the ministry, at other organizations. Um, so get active in your division, join BC Family Doctors and make, make, make the vision that you want. Make some noise. Richard. Uh, I think the, the take-home message is that change is inevitable. And when we have such massive change all at once, obviously some practices are going to suffer, some are going to thrive. What's the difference between the two? Um, I think you'd be summarizing Charles Darwin when he said, it's not the strongest nor the most intelligent that survives. It's the one who adapts to change. And I would encourage everybody to anticipate the change, monitor it, collaborate with each other, adapt to it, and enjoy it. It's going to be Thank a Thank you. Wise words. And Daniel, to you for the final comment. 
Well, first of all, I think uh, when you asked me to join, I was in a bit of a shock and a bit of uh, despair, but thankfully you gave me some hope and all of you guys have given me hope. Uh, Bruce, you did a fantastic job moderating. I think I have some key messages of paramount importance is collegiality with our staff, with our physicians, with our uh, our allied health providers, with third parties. We need to partner with our patients. We need to partner with um, the professional associations. And what we need to focus on is this is an opportunity to focus on optimizing longitudinal primary care. Together, we'll get through this. COVID-19 has been an incubator and an accelerator, and it's forced us to use technology and virtual care to try to provide care in an era of social distancing. But I think we're, we have an opportunity here to change how we provide primary care. Thank you, all of you. And um, I'd change that, that term social distancing uh, to physical distancing because what we're doing now tonight is narrowing that social distance. So thank you, everybody. And I'm sure you'd love to hear, continuing to hear more from this incredible panel. But we've reached 90 minutes and we do have to stop. I'd like to express my sincere gratitude to the panel, Dr. Aaron Childs, Dr. Jaron Easterbrook, Dr. Daniel Newey, and Dr. Richard Welsh, all very dedicated, very even heroic physicians and excellent educators for taking the time from their busy lives and heavy, critical clinical duties to answer your questions tonight. Uh, to that point, uh, we have a lot of questions and perhaps we can theme them uh, and provide some answers or even maybe better, we could have this panel back. And I'd love to, for you to comment to that in your evaluation. And I want to thank everybody uh, for attending. I hope this session was of value to you. Please take a few moments right now to complete the attendance and evaluation forms that were emailed to you in order to obtain study credits and to provide your feedback. And finally, I thought you might want to know about and register for some other webinars that we're offering over the next week in our COVID-19 webinar series on Tuesday, May 5th. Um, is Ask an Emergency and Critical Spare, uh, Care Specialist. Uh, it's number four on that series. And on May 7th, Thursday, uh, Practice Standards and Medical Legal Obligations during COVID-19. Um, and a reminder that our resource hub will also be included in the post-webinar email. I want to thank you all. Thank you to the panel. Thank you to the audience for your patience. And I want to wish you all a very safe um, journey and good night. Thanks for joining us and please tune in for the rest of our episodes. This has been a presentation of the UBC Medicine Learning Network. 